The Office of Personnel Management agreed with nearly all of the recommendations the National Academy of Public Administration made earlier this spring about how OPM should move on from the unsuccessful merger and reshape itself. The agency submitted its plans for charting a new course to Congress. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco joins me now to explain what those plans are and just how much Congress will need to get involved. Nicole, I guess everyone thought that when those National Academy of Public Administration recommendations came out, that maybe they would just fall into the black hole that a lot of these major studies and reports do and that OPM would kind of maybe march along the way it always has. But now they have responded to that report, that major undertaking, and evaluated the recommendations. Tell us what you know. Well, the legislation that uh, enacted the study or told NAPA to do this study actually required OPM to respond within six months. So we knew that OPM was going to respond. The question is whether Congress will do its part, and we can get into that later. But OPM, you know, described the process that they took for looking at this study, which really was quite comprehensive. I mean, several dozen recommendations, I believe over 70 of them, about how this agency should change and how really the administration should focus on federal human capital in general. And so OPM formed a a committee of senior officials and then formed seven working groups of agency staff to look at all of the recommendations and then develop ways to respond them. They also solicited feedback from the Office of Management and Budget, General Services Administration, and then their other customer agencies. They worked on scenario-based action plans, they said, to detail what actions they could take, the owners of the actions, and what resources they might need to actually implement these recommendations. And then they informed OPM's new four-year strategic plan, plus some very high-level estimates of resources that the agency believes would be necessary to actually carry out these recommendations. And the estimates are high-level because the agency doesn't want to get ahead of really that dialogue between OPM and OMB on where these resources are going to come from and exactly what it'll take to to implement them. Sure. Ultimately, OPM, whoever is in charge, tends to do what the administration wants it to do as a matter of personnel policy. To its credit, I guess we should say OPM waited until it had a full-time confirmed permanent director in place, and that seemed like a logical place then to begin their response. Does it look like the response then came as a result of having those people in place? Potentially. I think, you know, all along the OPM director, Kieran Ahuja, you know, in speaking with the press so far, she's referenced the Napa study. She's suggested that, you know, she agreed a lot with what the Academy had to say. And so, you know, I think on one hand, her comments have sort of indicated where they were going to go with this study and the recommendations. On the other, you know, I think it's also clear that they tapped into the expertise of their career officials as well, many of them who have been there a very long time and probably have some opinions about the recommendations. None of the recommendations also were, you know, real shockers. I think this is something that the federal community uh, you know, expected and I think commented on when the recommendations came out as, you know, some that would be, you know, not necessarily surprising and things that OPM should move ahead with. And it's a small village we all operate in. And it's not as if Ms. Ahuja did not know the Napa people, or at least quite a number of them that participated in this particular study and set of recommendations. All right. So what do we know so far that they're doing to implement the recommendations? Any any of the recommendations rise to the top of the cream that they're going to go after first? Or do we know that yet? 
I'm not sure that we necessarily know a specific timeline for implementing the recommendations. I think it really is a holistic kind of sweeping look at how OPM will implement these recommendations in pieces and potentially all at once, so to say. So, you know, at the same time, OPM said that they have, you know, started implementing some of them. And, you know, this is a process. It's not something that's necessarily, okay, recommendation one, check, we've done it. So, you know, for example, OPM said that they have started to expand the role, strengthen the role from the Chief Human Capital Officers Council. You know, we know that OPM resumed responsibility over this council earlier this year. The monthly meetings are back. They've also formed groups within the council itself to look at specific issues that are really resonant today, things like future of work, but also the council's organization and its role in general. So that's one thing that OPM is has said that it's done. It's also, you know, looking into possibly reorganizing the agency, not in the way that the previous administration envisioned with, you know, moving pieces off to different agencies, but just kind of reconfiguring things internally to better build the OPM that it wants to be, essentially. And so we, we, ha- we don't have a ton of details there. You know, the agency also said that it's addressing the organizational cultural issues and silos and specifically mentioned, with which I thought was interesting, the widely held perception that customers view OPM's mantra of just saying no um, and becoming more of a strategic partner. And that is a perception that OPM has had over the, the last couple of years. And so those are sort of you know, long-term strategic cultural activities that the agency says it's taking on. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Did any of the recommendations, and I'm trying to remember because I looked them over six months ago myself, on some of the operational, technical, detail type of issues such that, for example, OPM could have a much better, faster, and more reliable process of figuring something basic like retirement annuities? Yes, That's there. And if anything, that's mostly incorporated into how OPM wants to modernize its IT. And so, you know, I think at this point, it's probably a good time to move on to some of those recommendations that OPM wants to do. It says it's planning for, but that ultimately Congress is really going to need to step in and help with additional resources, help with additional guidance, and really put some oversight attention on some of these issues. So retirement services is one of them and modernizing the IT structure is one of them as well. And in its response to Congress, you know, OPM says that, you know, its goals are to improve retirement customer service, transform USA jobs, which has been, seems like an ongoing priority, uh, move the OPM website to a cloud hosted platform and better, and more quickly update that website to actually reflect things that OPM is working on. And, you know, the agency said that those IT modernization uh, initiatives would be a very high investment, which it estimated at anywhere between $50 million or more over a two-year period. You know, the agency is also looking at the IT working capital fund. It wants to establish one. It also wants to use resources from the technology modernization fund, as, as does everyone else. Uh, to work on some of these projects as well. All right. And that $50 million then gets to the question of what actions that OPM would take 
that would require some permission or legislation enabling from Congress. Right. So OPM actually agreed. And I thought some of these recommendations that it agreed with were pretty notable. One, that it should offer more training, policy interpretation, and other services to customers, i.e. agencies, for free of charge. And that was one of the NAPA recommendations. And that it could possibly delegate some of the authority for certain personnel transactions, things like maybe direct hire authority or early retirements, that sort of thing, directly to agencies themselves. And OPM agreed with that one as well. To an extent, it actually said, you know, there are some authorities that we think we should keep and have all on our own. And we think there are other authorities that you could delegate specifically to us and then have us delegate to the agency. So we maintain some oversight over them, but ultimately we allow agencies to move with more speed and, you know, do what they think is best for the individual agency, depending on the scenarios that they face. And so it kind of described a sort of trust but verify scenario where OPM would allow agencies to move forward with some personnel actions and then more strategically and regularly do oversight to make sure agencies are actually using those authorities properly. And of course, that might take some additional resources. To go back to the first point, if you're offering more services for free, which OPM does do, but not all of them, you know, OPM will need some more probably likely appropriated funding to keep the rest of the agency moving. So that's an issue. The other is Congress would have to sit down and look at federal statute and determine specifically which personnel transactions it thinks agencies could take on on their own. And that's going to take some work. And it's unclear, I think, at this point that Congress has the bandwidth and the interest to sit down and do some of that work. All right. So maybe we will get a new OPM that is not your grandfather's or grandmother's OPM. And while we have you, Nicola Grisco, I just wanted to check in on any developments related to the vaccine mandate since we last talked about them Monday morning. They had come out last Friday. And it looks like one of those cartoon illustrations of a multi-party brawl, big ball of cloud with fists and noses and swear word symbols coming out of the cloud kind of touched off that. What do we know at this point midweek? Well, we do know that everyone seems to have a lot of opinions about this <laughs> vaccine mandate if you look at some of the comment sections uh, on some of our stories. But the administration so far, and Tom, as we're speaking, this could change, of course, but the administration has said at this point that the deadline for all federal employees to be fully vaccinated will be November 22nd. It's the Monday before Thanksgiving. From there, what happens next, I think, is still an open question. And that's what we're waiting the administration to put out some more specific guidance on how agencies are supposed to require this specifically. From there, if someone fails to comply, what the disciplinary action piece looks like and how agencies should request a medical or religious accommodation, which we've been told they can do on this policy. So I think there's still more to come. I will say there is, of course, more confusion, I think, on the federal contracting side, because that second executive order on the contractors set up a pretty long-winded process to make these vaccine requirements essentially a contractual requirement. That's going to take time. It's going to take some effort by agencies, by OMB, to get that into place. And in the meantime, the administration is saying that actually the requirement to attest to your vaccination status for contractors anyway, or submit to regular testing, that's still in place. Again, only for federal contractors while they 
essentially get this process set up. Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out all of her coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. 
but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is 
is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.